Also, in case you missed it, last Tuesday was, don't say Halloween, Reformation Day, the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther, the great reformer, nailed his 95 theses onto the door of the castle at Wittenberg. And it sparked the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, Protestant protesting against abuses and false doctrine that had crept into the church. Remember at that time that the the church and the state were linked together. Church, very powerful. And what the church taught was what the people were expected to believe and conform to. And this lowly monk was struggling with what he was being taught and what he was expected to teach. That man had to work his way to God and he was never sure if he had done enough. In fact, the teaching of the day was that even after death, any residual sins had to be paid off in a place called purgatory. To be purged. Get the word purgatory. And the church began to teach that there were ways that you could help the purgatory go along faster while you were still on earth. And that you could help loved ones get out of purgatory faster through your good works and through giving and all kinds of other sacrifices one could make. And that beautiful gospel that you and I love, the gospel, the true gospel, that salvation is a free gift and it's accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone and to the glory of God alone, had been buried, it had been hidden, it had been obscured from the people by the very people that were called by God to proclaim the gospel and teach the gospel and make disciples. Most people don't realize that when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the gate, he was not trying to spark a public protest or spark an uprising. He very much wanted people to be submissive to the church, the church authorities and the state authorities. He himself wanted to be submissive to the church and the church authorities and the state authorities. In fact, he was a a professor and that gate was where other professors would nail, it was like the bulletin board. It was, hey, here's some things that I'm researching, let's discuss them and The 95 Theses were written in Latin, and most people could not read at all, let alone Latin. And so it was not intended for public consumption at the time. But he was such an impassioned teacher, and I'm a teacher, and I know sometimes I get my students fired up about things. And we understand that in a negative sense, when we look at academia today, a lot of these horrible ideas start in the college classroom or even in the high school classroom where this authority figure has this captive audience of people who don't yet know enough themselves to refute the teaching that they're hearing. In this case, though, Martin Luther had the correct teaching and he wanted to discuss it with his fellow teachers and other leaders in the church and his students were so fired up, they took his 95 Theses, translated it into German and reposted it and sent some copies to people with printing presses. And that's how the cat got out of the bag, so to speak. And the rest is history. And we're glad in God's providence, more than glad, that the Reformation spread as it did. We wouldn't have the church as we know it today without that important 
period of history. In fact, some might argue maybe I would put that event in the top ten events of human history. Because what's more important than the gospel? And if the church can't get the gospel right, isn't the glory of God the most important thing? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Martin Luther was not enjoying the God that had been presented to him. This God who you could never please. This God who you were never sure if you'd done enough. This God who was judgmental and seemed unloving. He began to hate this God, but it wasn't the true God that was being presented to Martin Luther. And he found the true God in the pages of Scripture. And he found the true gospel in the pages of Scripture. And he thought that everybody would be excited. Hey, come look what I discovered. This is who God really is. This is truly the gospel. And you'd think people would be excited. Some of you, your testimony or people that you know, when they came to Saving Faith, they were so excited they went and told everyone only to find out a lot of people were not excited. And they can't understand why. This is the good news. The best news. The most important news I've ever heard and will ever hear. And so why is it that people say, you keep your religion to yourself. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. And worse, as we saw in the video, it could lead to imprisonment, torture, even death. What is it about the truth about God and His salvation that make people angry. That's what we'll explore today, but the title of the sermon is that Reformation Courts Persecution. Reformation Courts Persecution. Thank you. On a side note, thank you very, very much for all the cards and prayers and well wishes during Pastor Appreciation Month. I know I speak on behalf of... All the pastoral staff, your cards and prayers and gifts encourage us and uplift us. And we need to feel the tangible love of God through the love of his people in that way. Thank you. And thank you to the sound booth ministry. I got a pastor appreciation gift. Watch this. Oh, I can change my own slides. I'm like a kid with a new toy. I know the sermon's supposed to be a serious uh, thing, but I have control of the clicker. I feel bad for Dave. Yeah, Dave's leaving. Dave, we still need you, man. We still need you. It also has a laser pointer. Look at that. If you fall asleep, I'm going to point you out. (laughs) <laughs> Let me read Luke thirteen thirty one to 35. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen, the word of God. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Who would want To kill Jesus. The most beautiful, the most compelling 
human being to ever walk this earth. The most compassionate, the most loving, the most powerful, the greatest teacher, miracle worker. I mean, honestly, it's who we're all trying to become like. And the world said, we cannot have this person around. Who would want to kill Jesus? Well, the get in line. By this time in his ministry, it's almost who doesn't want to kill Jesus. Herod tried to kill him when he was a baby. People in Jesus' own hometown wanted to kill him after his first sermon. Remember, he preached at the synagogue. He got the role of Isaiah. He read from the scroll. And he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they got really excited until he likened them to unrepentant Old Testament Israel and said, you know, you're just like Israel and He prophesied that in a similar way that God finally said to Israel, I'm going to bring salvation to the Gentiles. The same will happen today. And they got mad. And they wanted to kill him, but he slipped through their fingers. That's why I don't go home to preach. (laughs) And I pray for Nathan when he preaches. Because this is his hometown. As far as I know, nobody wants to kill him. You're not trying hard enough, my friend. <laughs> I'll let you have the clicker. You can point people out who need to repent. The religious leaders were pretending they cared about Jesus. Oh, you need to leave. Herod's trying to kill you. Wait a minute. Didn't we read that in private they were plotting to kill him? So what, what's going on here? They knew they couldn't kill him publicly because he was so popular it would cause an uprising. But Passover is coming and his popularity was growing so much that they were afraid that if Jesus came into the holy city on Passover, it was going to ruin their whole party, so to speak. This was when they made their most money. If you're teaching salvation by works and through sacrificial giving and you're in charge of running the whole system and you get to decide, well, no, that lamb's not not good enough. Well, I've come all this way to make my sacrifice at the temple. I don't have a spare lamb. Well, that's okay because we have some lambs for sale and they've been approved by the, the priests. For sacrifice. Well, how much do those cost? <laughs> God put a provision in the Old Testament law that if you were too poor to afford a lamb, you could bring two birds. Oh, but not just any two birds. And we have some of those too as well. Okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll buy some birds with what little money I have. That's the wrong kind of money. We only take a certain kind of money. Well, how am I going to get the certain kind of money? There's a table over here in the temple. And you can exchange your money for the proper kind of money. For a fee, of course. And Jesus said, this is my father's house. And it is a house of prayer. And you've turned it into what? A den of robbers. A den of iniquity. den of thieves. And these were the religious leaders. And so they wanted to kill Jesus because he was going to ruin the whole system that had given them the power and the money and the best seats and the best houses. Judas, maybe not directly, wanted to kill Jesus, but became so disenchanted that he had... Put in his lot with the wrong guy. Of course, we say he's the right guy. You put in your lot with the right guy, but Jesus wasn't going to deliver what Judas thought the payoff was going to be. 
And so at the last minute, turned Jesus into the authorities, must have known what was going to happen to Jesus once he got turned in. Or maybe never stopped to think about it because when people become so self-absorbed, they could care less what happens to the other people around them that they're hurting. Sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Probably hoping that by coming to the authorities to turn in Jesus, they wouldn't come after him when Jesus was arrested. Ultimately, though, we know who's first in line to kill Jesus, Satan. The enemy of God, the hater of your soul, the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The one who wants God's throne but can't have it. God's word tells us in Genesis 3.15 that Satan will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. We know that's Jesus. Bruise the heel of the seed. So he was trying to destroy Jesus. Probably thought he was winning when Jesus went to the cross. But only bruised his heel and Jesus crushed his head. The rest of that prophecy says, Genesis 3.15, crush the head of the snake. It's an imagery of a conquering king stepping on the neck or head of the defeated king. And that imagery, the, the, the best the defeated one could do is bruise the heel. In Satan's case, you know, bite the heel, bruise the heel, but Jesus will crush his head. Jesus did indeed die, but it wasn't because of any of these people. Yes, in one sense, we can blame all of these people. But in, an, in another sense, in a more important sense, Jesus said... I lay down my own life, and I have authority to take it back up. Jesus died according to the plans of our triune God. On the day it was supposed to happen, not a minute sooner, not a minute later, he was in complete control of the situation since eternity passed. So I don't want you to get the impression that persecution is out of God's hands. God knows his people will be persecuted. They killed his own son. But it was all according to God's plan. It's a difficult thing to endure at first when undergoing persecution that God could intervene and stop this, but he's choosing not to for some reason. And we know Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. That's us as believers, the called. Yet when we dwell on this doctrine longer and get past our initial shock and confusion and disappointment, it becomes a soothing and comforting doctrine that, yes, God is even in control of this. There is nothing to fear. Persecution is temporary. Heaven is forever. Let's ask then the question, why would these people want Jesus dead? Let's look at the human reasons why people hate Jesus. Herod was afraid of being replaced. He liked being king. It's good to be the king. He called himself king of the Jews, though he wasn't actually a Jew. He was an Idumean. And he converted to Judaism falsely in order to be able to call himself the king of the Jews. We know Herod Antipas was, uh, he was insane. He was vicious. He had members of his own family killed. 
so there'd be no heir to the throne. And so when people began talking about Jesus' kingship, Herod became insanely jealous. Even when Jesus was just born, telling the wise men from the east, why are you here? We're here to worship the king. Oh, let me know when you find him so I can go worship him. The wise men knew better and the angels told Joseph and Mary to flee. And Herod had all the babies to and under slaughtered, just to be sure. People in Jesus' hometown were offended. When he first preached the sermon, they were excited, but after they realized that he was talking to them and their need for repentance, they got very angry and they switched over to, oh wait, isn't that Joseph's son? Air quotes. Right? We, they were, there were rumors that the circumstances surrounding his birth were suspect, scandalous. The religious leaders were furious at being publicly humiliated. Every time they went up against Jesus in a battle of words, he would win. And he didn't win just because he was a better debater, which he was, but he had truth on his side. And you often see haters of Christ and haters of Christians, even if you have a winning argument and you argue in a way that's winsome and loving, they get angry and they, they come back with a new argument. Or they just attack you personally, what we would call an ad hominem attack against the man in Latin. They can't argue against the argument, so they're just going to argue against you as a person. Oh, those Christians. Oh, look, they're all hypocrites. Oh, or, or they're, all, they're all so righteous and so moral. And so the religious leaders were furious at being publicly shamed, and they were afraid of losing their power. Look, if we admit to the things that he's telling us we're doing wrong, that's it, show's over will lose all credibility as the leaders of Israel. Judas was disappointed that he had wasted his life following the wrong leader. He was expecting that Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom and he would have an important position in the kingdom. In fact, all the apostles believed this to be the case. And Judas had more to risk than the other guys. He was from the south. The other 11 were from the north. He was actually from Judah. And the power in Israel was concentrated in Jerusalem. That's where the Sanhedrin sat. And they did not look to the north with respect. People from Galilee were not respected. In the same way, people from Bakersfield might look to the north and see Oildale. Or, I'm from Stockton, we'd look to the north and say Lodi. And pretty much anyone south of Stockton would, would look to Stockton as the people they didn't respect. And that's human nature, sadly, to always find somebody that you believe you're better than to elevate yourself to a position of authority and I'm better than you and I have control over you. So the south did that to the north. Judas had a lot to risk here. He was a southerner. He threw in his lot with these Galileans. And when he decided it wasn't going to pay off, he cut bait and ran, as it were. He 
He's just self-absorbed. Satan ultimately hates God out of pride and envy. He wants the throne. A beautiful angel. And we get the idea from the scriptures that he had an exalted position above other angels, but it wasn't enough for him. And there's only room for one God in heaven. And so Satan, even though he's lost, he's hell-bent on making sure nobody gets to enjoy the glory of God. So God, in his mercy, though, works in people's hearts to build up reformers in this world. Prophets, preachers, evangelists, counselors. Whether you're calling for reformation on the individual level in, a, in the counseling room or at the coffee table of a friend's house or you're calling for an entire church to reform like Martin Luther and everything in between. Praise God for reformers. We need them. Look, we're all lazy. We would all rather just go about our business and keep things the way they are. Reformation takes work. People don't like to change. But praise God for reformers. When God puts a message into your heart and you just can't shake it, I've got to preach this. I I. I can't turn my back on this wrong, on this injustice. I'm jealous for God's glory. I love his people and want to see them glorify God and read the scriptures and interpret it correctly and apply it to their lives in ways that bring glory to God. Isn't Much of the Bible, a historical record of God calling people to repent through his reformers and how they responded to that message. Rarely is the response positive. That ought to tell you a lot about human nature. It's not like we're all sitting around waiting to be told that we need to reform. Maybe a few of you. I, I'm going to pick on uh, Dr. Garcia here after visiting our church three times. He told me one Sunday after a sermon, I love coming to your church. You make me feel horrible about myself afterwards. <laughs> what a compliment. Thank you. I knew what he meant, though. He didn't want to go to a church where they just... Gave you empty platitudes about yourself. Self-esteem gospel. Just preach the word line by line and the call to reform is going to jump off the pages of the scripture. I'm not telling you you need to change because the authority lies in me. The scriptures are calling you to change. And all week long as I studied, they called me to change. And like Martin Luther, I'm like, come see what I found. And sometimes people don't like to hear what you found. But I have the confidence, and you should have the confidence as a Christian, that in as much as you are sharing what the Scriptures say, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. Which, when God changes your heart, is sometimes worse than being personally rejected. I hurt for people who reject God. I hurt because God's beauty and glory are being rejected, but I also hurt for the person on an individual level that you are turning your back on the most beautiful thing in the universe, and if you continue to do so, 
there are consequences. So I get myself out of the way. As long as I'm preaching the word, the persecution isn't personal. Historically, reformers always faced persecution. Maybe we'd say the first reformer was Noah. How did that go? Like a hundred year ministry and only his family got on the boat. Historically, the prophets are imprisoned, tortured, killed. You know, the people would tell them, yes, we need prophets, but only this message. (laughs) That's not the message God gave me. Well, that's the one we want to hear. And so Israel was often filled with false prophets, false teachers. Everything's fine. Everything's good. God, God's incredibly happy with you. Sometimes we do need to hear that, and sometimes that is the message. Well done, good and faithful servant. Of course, Jesus despised and crucified. You want to read a summary of his life, read Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows. At the end of his life, abandoned by all. Because there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to remember that about ourselves. When we talk about reformation, you must be careful that you don't always put yourself in the seat of, I'm the one calling for reformation. It doesn't apply to me. I am calling today for all of us to, in some way, shape, or form, call others to reform, to preach the word, to make disciples, to evangelize, But it should always begin with, my heart needs reformation first. Then you're ready to preach, to teach, to make disciples, to witness. The apostles were beaten, imprisoned, and and martyred. Martin Luther had to hide in the castle at Wartburg. They wanted to kill him. You know what he did while he was in hiding? He translated the Bible into German. The whole thing. And spread uh, the Bible across the Roman Empire in German. I was reading that it spread the German language more than anything else. Most people were illiterate at the time, but when they found out they could read the Bible, they had a reason to learn to read. Of course, Tyndale, translating the Bible from Latin into English so English speakers could have the Bible. And for this, the world wanted to kill them. Could you imagine? The leaders and authorities Banning together to say, no, 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 they can't read this. That would be horrible and dangerous for people to, to be able to read God's word. That sounds satanic. That sounds demonic. It is. Satan always tempting man to not listen to the word of God. Did God really say? That was the temptation in the garden. See, a nicer way of saying that is, oh, this is too complicated for regular people to understand. We won't give it to them in their own language. That would, that would be dangerous. You, you come and ask us and we'll tell you what it means. Well, what does it mean? It means you need to put money in this cup here so you can get out of hell, out of purgatory. Where's that? It's not in there. It's not in there. And as you listen to sermons and you attend Bible studies, you should always be like the Bereans 
who searched the scriptures themselves to make sure that what they were hearing was truly the word of God. Other people persecuted Christian abolitionists and missionaries. I was thinking maybe the first reformer, though, that was ever persecuted was Abel. Now, he wasn't, we don't have any indication that he was trying to reform his brother. He was just being obedient and doing the right thing. And God was pleased with him, and his brother hated him for it. And sometimes the persecution you're going to endure as a Christian is simply because you're living a good life. And it's bringing conviction to the people around you. Oh, look at them. I mean, as long as you're not doing it with this holier-than-thou attitude, and I'm better than you, but this is the way our conscience often works. When we see beauty in front of us and righteousness and holiness, if we're not striving to live a righteous life, it can become the most ugly thing in the world to us because it reminds us where we are falling short. And so Abel, instead of... um, His life should have led his brother to repentance. Instead, Cain became so angered at his brother. And God said to to Cain, Look, if you do what's right, won't it go well with you too? All he had to do was reform, repent. And instead he murdered his brother. I want you to understand that ultimately reform, reformation always comes down to authority. Who has the authority to say this is truth? Who has the authority to say this is who God is? This is who man is. This is man's purpose in life. This is man's problem. This is the solution to man's problem. And this is how we're reconciled to God. Who gets to answer those questions? Before the Reformation, Martin Luther was sent with another delicate, delegate from his monastery to Rome. It was a very prestigious um, thing to be asked to do. And he traveled to Rome and they paid for his trip. And he got there and the sacred stairs were there. The sacred stairs. These were stairs that were the very stairs that Jesus had to climb to get up to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And during the Crusades, the stairs had been disassembled, moved to Rome, to the Vatican, and reassembled. And people would climb the stairs on their knees and pray an Our Father or a Hail Mary or a certain number of them at each stair. By the time they got to the top, they were assured by the church that a certain number of your sins had been forgiven and you had built up credit in the treasury of merit, this mystical place somewhere where good deeds are kept in a treasury and the saints have really filled up the box and Mary has really filled up the box and the church has the authority because they have the keys of the kingdom, they say, to tell you how you can get some of that treasury credited to your account. And one of the ways was to climb these stairs on your knees and then put money in the box when you got to the top. And Martin Luther did it because he desperately wanted to know that he was right with God. He really struggled with his sin and by all human accounts, there wasn't much sin there to repent of, but He even was struggling over his wrong attitude, his pride. And he never became convinced that God was pleased with him. And so he couldn't wait to go to Rome because he knew there was better opportunities there to be purged of this sin. That he got to the top of the stairs and instead of feeling relief, He felt under more bondage and he yelled out to everyone else, does anyone know if this is true? 
What if I did all this for nothing? Worse, what if I did all this and it made, made things worse? He struggled as a priest when it came time to do communion because he was told that if you don't say the words right with the right heart attitude, that the body, the bread and the wine would not turn into the body and blood of Christ. And then people would be taking communion and instead of helping them, it would be hurting them. Imagine that kind of pressure put on you. And he began searching the scriptures and he found the gospel of grace clearly uh, more so than any other book in the book of Romans. A righteousness from God. A righteousness from God. God's righteousness imputed to man's account through faith. So the authority lies in the scripture alone. That was the first sola of the Reformation. Sola scriptura in scripture alone. All truth, all authorities from scripture. Jesus said when he'd argue with the Pharisees, have you not read? And even in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, because Jesus is the Lord of Scripture, he is the Word incarnate, I tell you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, If you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. The authority lies in Scripture and the God of the Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Then how are we saved? Through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. Faith in what? It's not faith in what. It's a faith in who? In Christ alone. Sola Christa, to the glory of God alone. The five solas of the Reformation. You should memorize those. and Think on them and dwell on them. Jesus said, go and tell that fox, Herod, that's not a kind term, that shrewd, thieving, that fox, not to be trusted. That I'm the one who casts out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. Look at my miracles. They testify to my authority. And I will do this today and tomorrow and the third day. That's a Hebrew way of saying, you can't stop me. It's going to happen today, tomorrow, and the next. Until completion. Because it's God-ordained, so you can't stop it. Obviously, he's pointing to to his resurrection on the third day. And he reiterates it and says, I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to travel today and tomorrow, and I'm going to get there the next because I've got work to do, and you can't stop it. Herod can't stop it from happening. Go tell that fox, I have the authority. He doesn't. That leads me to a, a word of warning then, for would-be reformers. Because I want you guys to be reformers. But reform can't be about your personal preferences. Sometimes people get all fired up about something. They become convinced this is the way things should happen. Whether it's in their personal life, in their marriage, with their friends, at work, in the church. And sometimes reform does need to happen in those places, but make sure the reforms are rooted and grounded in the Word of God. We like to say at our church, major on the majors. Minor on the minor doctrines, but they're still important. But, and then in the rest, charity and all things charity, meaning humility. Right? People aim some things people get fired up about at church. Oh, the worship music. Is it theologically sound? Yes. Is it played with excellence? Yes. Is it glorifying to God? Yes. Is it your favorite tune? No. Reform! (laughs) No, that's the wrong thing to get fired up about.
the Protestant Reformation was all about who has the authority to dictate the terms of salvation. The most important doctrine. Got to get that one right. So that was a battle he was willing to fight and we're glad he did. But guess what? Martin Luther had some other reforms he wanted. Not so good. Not so good. And we're thankful that the reform community brought correction into Martin Luther's life where there needed to be correction. And so we should always accomplish reform in the community of believers as a safeguard to make sure it's not just a personal hobby horse. Or maybe you have the right reforms, but you're going about it the wrong way. You're not going about it with humility. Biblically, Reformation is always a call to repent from being your own authority, which is idolatry. That's where it always starts. The the chief reform that all men need to make is, I'm not God. That's a great starting place. What has God said? What is true? What does God want? Now let's Come together as the people of God until we're in full agreement that this is the path God has chartered out for us. Another warning, though, is that Reformation will court persecution. Nobody likes to be told that they need to change. Jesus saying, look, a prophet... Would, would never perish outside Jerusalem. He's pointing to the long, illustrious history of prophets being persecuted. Prophets of Israel being persecuted by God's own people. Look, this is the way it's always worked. I've got to get to Jerusalem. That's where prophets get persecuted. It's later what gets Stephen killed. And your fathers killed all the prophets and and now you killed Jesus. And they got angry. They got mad at being reminded of that. But look at God's compassion, Jesus' compassion. At the same time that he is rebuking the people, you see his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I love these people and how much I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her brood but you would not come you would not gather you would not come to the safety and shelter of Christ why then does reformation court persecution here's here's a pretty simple list number 1 people don't like to be told they're wrong anyone in here like to be told they're wrong. No hands. People don't like to lose their power. Who likes to let, let go of control? Nope, no hands. My hand's not up. I've got the remote. <laughs> Try taking it from me. <laughs> You'll wish you never gave me this thing, right? People don't like change in general. We're all afraid of change. We're either afraid of it or we're insulted by it because if, if change is necessary, you're telling me I must be doing something wrong. And, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in general, it's a favorite pastime of humanity to complain about the world, yet don't like being told that they're part of the problem. And will have to make personal sacrifices to be part of the solution. But God calls us to be reformers, to help people reform, to teach them to obey all that God has commanded. That's what it means to make disciples. Folks, we can't shy away from this. We can't say, well, I just want to be one of those Christians who just doesn't ever rock the boat. I just want everyone to like me. Look, there's something to be said for the scripture that says, live peaceably with all men and as much as is possible. But... You're not going to live with peace with all men if you're making disciples. Somebody's going to get upset. 
And that is okay as long as you're not making people upset because you like to win an argument, because you like to get in people's faces. But persecution will come if you are living as an obedient Christian. It's not when, it's not if, it's when. I messed that up first service too. It's not if, it's when. Right? Because it's a heart issue. Right, James? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Where's where's this persecution going to come from? Isn't it because of the desires that wage war inside you, that you, you want what you want, but you can't have it, so you commit murder? I want this guy to go away. I want this Christian to shut up. I want you to get out of my face. I want you to stop reminding me of my immorality. I want to be my own God. Stop telling me about this omnipotent, sovereign God. You're envious, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives to spend them on your pleasures. It's it's a hard issue. But God is able to change hearts. Amen? God is able to change hearts. And so we go about together as a church this mission of reformation. Starting with our own heart first and then spreading out to others. Because refusal to reform has terrible consequences. Jesus says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Because they, because they wouldn't come. They wouldn't repent. And in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands were slaughtered. The temple was burned and stripped of all of its gold. And then destroyed stone by stone by stone by stone. And yet... Jesus leaves us with a word of warning and a word of hope. For those who will not repent, he says, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was his triumphal entry into the holy city a week before he was crucified. That was a word of judgment because the people would be crying one thing and just a week later, He would be abandoned and crucified. But he's also pointing to his second coming. When those who truly want to be gathered under his wings like a hen gathers her brood will say with a right heart, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here we we see our calling as Christians to call for reform. Yes, persecution will, will come. But it's temporary. For those who will not come to Christ, that's forever. And so we overcome the fear of persecution knowing that our forever is taken care of in Christ. And we have this beautiful, wonderful message to present to the world. 